This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where we never knew how much we liked getting our ears kissed until we became lap cats for the alien hordes. I'm your host, Nat. And I'm your host, Nina. <laughs> I actually didn't read that before I said it, and I'm just like, I wonder what this is going to be. <laughs> this is queers at the end of the world the podcast where we found a copy of gay semiotics in the ashes of what was once a public restroom and the past is looking a whole lot sexier now i'm your host nina and i'm your host nat and today we're talking to Dr. Patricia Kashian and Hosmik Julakian. Patricia is a mycologist that is a scientist who studies mushrooms. She curates a fungarium, which sounds quite frankly like dreamland. And she works on fungal taxonomy, which is the way mushrooms are named and classified and described. Hosmik is a writer and educator. And in her day job, she works on sexual and domestic violence prevention. Together, they wrote an article for the peer-reviewed journal Catalyst that looks at the queerness of mushrooms and mycology. The article is called The Science Underground, Mycology as a Queer Discipline. And it takes mushrooms as a starting point for reimagining the boundaries of discipline and knowledge in science. Like more and more peer-reviewed research, thankfully, this article is available online without having to belong to a university. So we're linking to it in the show notes. We're so excited to get to talk with both Hosmic and Patty today about the boundary disintegrating, individuality-defying, multi-gendered, occasionally sperm-smelling world of mushrooms. <laughs> yes. Well, let's get started. We wanted to ask a little bit about your collaboration. A women's studies practitioner who writes outside the academy and a mycologist are a pretty queer pair to find in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, so how did this collaboration come about? Yeah, so Hosmik and I have been friends for a few years, and I knew that Hosmik was trained in writing, and I had started working on this concept. I started to sort of research it and, you know, collect resources and literature dives, and I realized that I thought it would be much more fun to explore this idea of queer mycology with with a friend. And I kind of wanted to cross over outside of science and find a collaborator who was familiar with theory and eager to explore that and to do so in a way that was maybe uninhibited, which I think um, is a little more challenging for scientists. Yeah, like I, I never really, like really appreciated and realized that these disciplines, that these ideas, and I guess ways of seeing or experiencing the world are not diametrically opposed they're not yeah. they're not you know they're not like separate you know and, and I mean ever since and obviously now I, I appreciate that even more from the perspective of like how folks like Robin Kimmerer indigenous scientists connect with and understand the natural world so all of that is to say that it was this dive into appreciating that you can see through these multiple lenses at the same time that these are not discrete things I love that I was thinking I've done some collaboration myself with a scientist. My partner is actually a scientist and I'm very much not trained in the sciences. And it's really fascinating to think about the the ways humanities folks and science folks are trained to write and communicate. Yeah. It's so different. And I always feel like there is this mm. queer thing involved in like crossing the divide and saying mm -hmm. we can work together. Yeah. Well, you guys know that the book that we have been talking about in the last episode on Queers at the End of the World is Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind. And even though that manga contains these huge mushroom forests, you know, it's somehow it sort of went over my head <laughs> to think about mushrooms as like remediating or anti-apocalyptic forces in their way. And what finally really made me notice fungi and the ways that they help us think across boundaries including these disciplinary boundaries that you all are talking about, was a book that's called The Mushroom at the End of the World by Anna Tsing. And that book's subtitle is On the Possibility of Life in the Capitalist Ruins. And it evokes that through maitake mushrooms, which grow in clear-cut forests and other disturbed ecosystems. And it kind of thinks through this idea that life might be possible even if we never get, you know, kind of back to nature in that sort of like conservationist sense. 
So I'm wondering what you both think about how mushrooms work as guides maybe through apocalypse and change for people. Yeah, it's both like there's this like functionality to their anti-apocalyptic potential. And then there's like, I think these more subtle lessons of learning to appreciate things that are not maybe ideal um, in our society today and finding space for a different type of relationship with like natural forces like death and decay. So I, I, I think that for sure there's this um, clear application potential that we really have just barely started to scratch the surface of we, with using mushrooms for remediation, you know, for digesting um, fossil fuels to concentrating heavy metals to even this report of a fungus metabolizing cesium-137 in the reactors of Chernobyl. Mm. I mean, talk about apocalypse, yeah. like a nuclear explosion. It doesn't really get more apocalyptic, but I think it kind of helps you reimagine ways in which you can engage with, with nature, but also I think it, there's this fun- functionality to them that I think is very exciting. Yeah, my take on that is not an academic one. I guess I have more of a sort of poetic association or yeah. understanding of that role that mushrooms play. And something I've actually been in kind of ruminating about in the past couple weeks, I took this writing workshop. I was actually a Eswana Southwest Asian North African writing workshop that was offered and we we're doing coffee cup readings as as sort of a jumping off point for, for some writing prompts. And in the course of that conversation, somebody brought up the idea of apocalypse. And the person who was facilitating that workshop shared that the origin of the word apocalypse actually means more of the sense of an unveiling than mm. an end of things. And I just found that really captivating. And I just I've, I keep like going back to that idea. And it also ties in with some of the most memorable moments of this mycology summit in the woods that Patty and I both attended a couple years ago was this one speaker who was talking about this idea of of refugia, these zones of refuge that that could potentially be formed down the line by plant species and, and other animal species that we currently think of as invasive. So just just all of these ideas about how do we think about transformation and, and my, again, my, my poetic and non-academic understanding of the role that mushrooms and fungi play in those processes of transformation, you know, in those in those times that like, you know, down the line that to my brain, I can't even conceptualize what climate change could bring um, and the role that that mushrooms would play in potentially remediating some of that, but also like going back to that idea of apocalypse as unveiling, like how do we even think about spaces, you know, as in some ways like fundamentally different than we think of them. I don't know that and that mm. makes me think of um I haven't read the the Nausicaa manga, but I but I but I've seen the movie and I just I'm really captivated with that too. Just this 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 space, this landscape that is so different, but it still has a a function, a purpose to it. It's still operating on some level that's just not discernible. Do you know what I mean? That that there's something still Mm -hmm. happening. It's just that it takes an unveiling to kind of reveal what's taking Mm. place. So much of that manga is about that sort of unveiling and then another unveiling. And there's so many layers to what's going on in the natural world of Nausicaa and then like the history of that and how the meaning of nature is not only one single thing in the narrative, um, which is just, I mean, so resonant with the science of that and some of like what you're saying you heard at that summit, you know, it's remediating, but then there's also a component, at least in the manga of some of these organisms being man-made, which is really fascinating. It's like this unclear status of moral good. It's like this complex system that's just sort of happening that we can look at and learn from and make our own meaning of, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
it connects in my mind to what you were saying about invasive species, Hasmik. I was listening actually just last night to a conversation among a bunch of indigenous agricultural thinkers, educators, and growers about regenerative agriculture as indigenous practice. And one of the speakers, uh, I think it was Megan Baldy, um, who said this, but she was talking about invasive species and kind of referencing this idea that invasive species should be thought of as an enemy to like indigenous growing practices. And she was just sort of like, kind of saying like, that's ridiculous. Like, we live here, the things that live here with live here with us, just because something is kind of new here doesn't necessarily mean that it's an enemy and has to be destroyed. Like we will work with what the land brings with it. Um, which I just thought was a really interesting way to be talking oh. about invasive species and again kind of breaking down this the like way that good bad binaries get set up Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i do think that there is like certainly a spectrum for invasive species um you know there's plants or organisms that come and and do dramatically decrease biodiversity in the area through their ability to avert some sort of environmental pressure that currently works on you know the native species Mm -hmm. and then there's things that kind of can just join the mix and not have a net loss of biodiversity in the area. So I do think that there is like ecological reason to monitor um, newly introduced species and to try to maximize biodiversity, especially in already disturbed areas, areas that are already stressed by human impact. But I also think that there's a very militaristic language um, and colonial language around invasives and like eradication and you know really intense metaphors for Mm -hmm. like alien species um and i do think that people are channeling this sort of xenophobic thing um even when it comes to non-human forms and i do think that that is like a definitely a toxic and potentially like even dangerous way of viewing anything any any life form even if it has you know some negative consequences to the environment i you know it doesn't mean it needs to be like stomped out in this like hateful way you know it's certainly not its fault for arriving you know wherever it came from you know like i'm thinking about the the birds that were introduced to central park by the man who wanted to like put all of the birds mentioned in Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and now the and now the most <laughs> common birds here in the United States, like house sparrows, starlings, those are all introduced. But those when you think about those individual beings, you know, they're they're our neighbors now too. And even though starlings like can just can outcompete native species and lead to general bird diversity decline, they still are our neighbors. So I don't hate them. Absolutely. I, Talk about your interdisciplinary realities. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> the, the species of Shakespeare leading to a decline in uh, <laughs> a decline in biodiversity yeah. in birds in the United States. <laughs> well, it reminds me of a part in, in your article where you talked about uh, another version of this that had to do with using ableist and queerphobic language to talk about biology like I think you mentioned the term sexual abnormalities as Mm -hmm. well. And it seems like another version of that where people are observing things and then really channeling a certain sort of hegemonic heteronormative frame in the way they label and understand what those things are. Mm. Yes, I would say that it definitely compares to that. Um, Yeah, we were talking about how Sometimes, like in certain cases, environmental toxins can lead to like intersex organisms. Um, I mean, in science, they use the term hermaphroditic, which I, I, um, I wouldn't extend to a human, but and they talk about it as this like aberrant, you know, thing that happens only in exposure to these terrible toxins. Um, and then I don't think, you know, I don't think people are trying to, they I just they maybe don't realize that 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 has these broader consequences. The fact that that's not even really true, like that's not the only way in which we don't exist in a binary. You know, it's not just in the face of toxins and danger and destruction that these non-binary things emerge. You know, those non-binaries are, are around us all the time and in all sorts of settings. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, the article is so much about how mushrooms and fungus are non-binary. Mm-hmm. And I, especially when you said that they are not clearly plants or animals, that felt so, even, you know, I, I think I've been subject to some of the forces you point out and th- being scared of them and thinking of mm-hmm. them in a way of maybe just not understanding what they really are. And it was so cool to think of mycology as this like, study of this fundamentally like non-binary thing yeah I guess one of my fears in writing this article was that I didn't want to like I I wouldn't want to insinuate that if you were raised to be a little fearful of mushrooms or if you just that that is your experience that you were therefore like uh homophobic or something like I obviously wouldn't want (laughs) to I was afraid that that would one-to-one correlation yeah that I don't (laughs) make sure that that's clear but of course though I do think that there's these similar logics I think operating and I um and that the, it's not just an abstract exercise to to consider them, but to also see how it materially then manifests in our scientific understanding of the world and in the current situation and how it manifests in climate destruction. <laughs> you know, it's like that's the most material you can be. So I just, it, you know, it's it, it's it is kind of intellectual, but then it it, it plays out, you know. What is that connection to climate destruction that you're referring to? So um, in misunderstanding the earth, I think people believe that there's a hierarchy and we're on top of it. And therefore, anything beneath us is ours to chew up and spit out. And um, I think that the most clear example of that is how little that we regard fungi and how we as a society, particularly an American Western society, like collectively have decided that these organisms are not worth our time or our respect. Um, and it, I think the consequences of that, the consequences of neglecting the needs of other beings and the, um, the consequences of assuming that we can do whatever we want and our comforts won't be affected is a very material outcome of I think, misunderstanding non-human life. It's like human exceptionalism, I suppose. Right. And this this utility of, of all, all things that are non-human. Yeah. I, I'm all for, you know, working towards sustainability. Like, that's wonderful. But sometimes I even think about, like, that framework itself doesn't sometimes go quite far enough as to even question that expectation that it's to make things sustainable for human use right it still looks at it as if the only perspective that matters is the human perspective yeah yeah i mean it seems like with this study of mycology there is something we can take from it and maybe finding an alternate perspective and i kind of wanted to ask what is inherently queer about mycology And I I wanted to bring into the discussion here this quote um, from the article that I think Nina and I both really just loved. You wrote, many mycologists remember their first mycological experience very clearly. Usually it was by way of a charismatic teacher who brought to focus this queer world. Upon realizing that there was actually this other world where the rules did not quite apply, many mycologists felt at once siege and awakened. Mycology speaks to the personal, sexual, and or political lives of its investigators. Um, I was wondering if um, you could just expand on that a little bit and talk about that queerness in this this science. Uh, yeah, well, I, it's sometimes I'm not sure where to start with it because it just feels like I, I can <laughs> feel it on so many levels. Yeah, I mean, there's like anecdotally, like I know of quite a few queer mycologists and and then I, I've, it's been told to me before, like by other queer mycologists, but like I know a lot of queer mycologists and it just seems to be like there's this feeling like even when you go to like some mycology conferences, it's just like way more casual than some other academic spaces. And like, remember like the first one I went to, like someone was wearing like, tie-dye spandex pants and like there's a lot of tattoos and so then there's this visceral thing that happens I think you just immediately sense that there's people who are not necessarily in the LGBTQIA community but maybe sort of in other subcultures as well and I think that was 
definitely part of it for me in terms of like the field and the career itself. But then the biology of the fungi also just immediately are surprising, I guess, and sort of but familiar also. I, I grew up kind of as when I was a little kid, I was always obsessed with being outside in um, nature. But my earliest love were um, reptiles and swamps particularly I just I grew up near like some wetlands and I like tromped around in them with my siblings a lot and would catch snakes and snapping turtles and like the things that people were kind of creeped out by or afraid of and I Mm -hmm. didn't I didn't have mushrooms on my radar until I was in college but they immediately felt like they filled a kind of a similar space in my heart as those like swamp creatures did. So I immediately was just like, oh, no one really pays attention to these. In fact, people are mostly kind of weirded out by them. That's sort of how I feel um, as a human being sometimes um, that I you know, <laughs> don't really feel understood or, or yeah. particularly when I was younger, I you know didn't have the language for my queerness, you know. Um, but I knew it was there and, and, and it took different forms over the years, but I got to feel, I think there was just immediately a kinship that was like striking to me and it was visceral and sort of electric. I mean, I can remember the, I remember the day I first like learned about mycology. And then I remember the day that I first found like this flush of reishi mushrooms. Um, you know, it was about 10 years ago now, but um, Ganoderma sugi is the the species of reishi that grows on hemlock in the northeast and is medicinal like species that grows originally in Europe and Asia, Ganoderma lucidum, which is actually a species complex. But yeah, those mushrooms, they were growing out of this dead hemlock and there were probably like, I didn't collect, I mean, I only collected a few, but there were maybe like 40 pounds of them and they were like warm and like reverberating. And I just was like, I like, I was never the same again. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just a few thoughts I have. Honestly, Patty, I could listen to you talk about mushrooms for hours, (laughs) but, um, um, Yeah, I mean, something that we included in the article, I'll speak to it, but Patty, it was your own experience. Um, You shared that when you were a teaching assistant at SUNY ESF, one of the things you had your students do was, and I'm going to let you you remind me what the name of the mushroom was, but but you had... Thank you. You had your students like you had someone volunteer to put this mushroom that is poisonous if ingested in their mouth and nibble on it and then spit it out. And if I had that experience as a freshman who was planning on pursuing biology, it is entirely <laughs> likely I would not have completely abandoned that and run to my gender studies. I mean, I still would have run to gender studies, but like, <laughs> hand, hands in hand. With well, you my could have done it together. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, I just think you were completely flipping upside down this idea of what it is to be in a classroom. Like mm. you are you are involving people's senses. You are calling upon them to engage with the material literally in as intimate of a way as possible, as opposed to just reading about something or listening to somebody talk to you about something. Um, I think that upends this idea of what it means, you know, in these like classical stereotypical ways to understand a thing. Like you are using your body to get to know this being, this mushroom. And that's something to me definitively queer about that. Mm. Um, You know, and I felt similarly when we were at that mycological summit, Nimun Summit, I think it was like the first or the second night that we were all there. And I was like surrounded by all these incredible like weird, wonderful people who had, you know, some of them were academics, some of them were amateurs like me, which was really cool. And one of the folks who was speaking that night was asking the audience to name what, again, Patty, what was the name of that mushroom? Oh, um, oh. The one that tastes like semen. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm Inosity, Inosity. Thank you. It was, you know, and people are throwing out like swimming pools, semen, all the all these other descriptors. And, you know, what a way to share information. What a way <laughs> to create like a patchwork of people's very unobjective understandings of 
a thing. And I just think that that's beautiful. I think that that's um, just, just brings me, you know, like in college, I remember the day that I was in that class when the notion of like objectivity was forever, like a glass shattering, like, you know, (laughs) and, and to like carry that into, I won't call them scientific pursuits, but into spaces of scientific learning for me, it's just really incredible. Hmm. I feel like, you know, Nina and I have occasionally had conversations where we're like, this is pre-COVID, but what are some places we can go to like be in a group and just feel queer and have it be like this glorious kind of expressive, you know, and we were like, we don't want to just like go clubbing because that just feels like I can't stay up very late these days and I don't want to (laughs) drink. And so I am now putting my college summit on that list. (laughs) Oh, oh, hell yeah. Yes. That seems so awesome. Yeah, specifically, we should shout out, it's the New Moon Mycology Summit. And it's, well, this would have been the third year. Um, I'm not sure if they're even going to try to do it this summer because, you know, you have to get started so early to make it happen. And with COVID, I don't know if they can make that plan. But it will happen again, I'm confident. And it's co-organized by a few really amazing people, one of whom is a good friend of mine. Um, Her name is Olga. And she's an excellent human being. And she she's the owner of Smugtown Mushrooms, which is in Rochester, which is like a small company that makes um, grow kits. And she sells medicinal mushrooms that she grows and forages. And she's so I just want to plug her because she's a great person who does a lot for people. But she put together the New Moon Summit and it was like the most perfect event I've ever attended in my life. Uh, so... That sounds incredible. I'm on board. (laughs) I was just going to say real quick about that story that you were just telling about this like crowdsourcing the smell of of this mushroom that there was a line in the paper where it sort of referenced like all of the different memories that people were probably Mm -hmm. going through in their minds when they were saying what this mushroom smelled like and this idea of like putting this mushroom in front of a bunch of people having people say like that smells like (laughs) semen (laughs) and then like imagining what all of the different people in the room are thinking about in that moment Mm -hmm. it's like (laughs) something that is not usually imagined in academic spaces but just like this bringing of desire to the room and it's like a well-known thing that anosabit <laughs> smells like semen and it's like it's just like everyone knows it and and it's constantly referenced <laughs> really science jokes <laughs> yeah i was gonna ask a part two to the queer mycology question that is for hosmic you know what have you taken from learning about the science of mushrooms into your own work? Through, I mean, through my my paid work, I think a lot about the notion of, you know, survivorship, what it what it looks like, what it means to to heal, to experience trauma, to recover from trauma, if we even want to use that word, but also but also, you know, just as a human person, as someone who thinks a lot about I, I think a lot about intergenerational trauma. I think a lot about PTSD. And also, you know, also trauma at the level of nations and cultures and indigenous cultures that experience genocide and experience um, ethnic cleansing and and the ways that those things at that level also seep into individual people's traumas and commingle. And, you know, Patty and I are both Armenian, so the past few months in particular there was a genocidal attack that occurred, ethnic cleansing that took place against the Armenians of Artsakh in September. So, so those thoughts about trauma, about healing, about intergenerational trauma, about what it looks like to to heal with people, to heal in community, are thoughts that have been really heavy on my mind. You know, and over the course of writing this paper, these were all things that I was very explicitly thinking about and think and making, you know, links to about just how do we understand ourselves in relationship with others? How do we understand ourselves as and and also connection to to place, to land, that being something that's so important for folks, especially who live in diaspora, that that sense of place, that sense of longing. I wouldn't say, you know, when I do think about these things, I make explicit connections to like mycelia and fungi Mm -hmm. and things like that. But I think these more fundamental notions 
do run deep because it's the same sort of sense of this web of connecting people when you're living in diaspora, of like connecting to and finding community with other people. That's so essential to survival. Mm. You're kind of talking about like a metaphor of diaspora as mycelium, I sort of hear. And yeah, just kind of like going along with that, Hosmic, like um, when when there's like there can be like very special types of growth in diaspora, right? D- new communities that bring both like it's I think it hit me recently that like even though I'm so, you know, we are descendants of genocide survivors, I still sort of only really thought about as an adult how like there are groups of people around the world who've already experienced the apocalypse. Um, and, you know, genocide is an apocalypse, of, you know, I mean, it's, it, for that that world that you occupy. And um, so you don't want to romanticize the outcome of that, of course, but Yet there's also beauty in and strength in ways in which people survive and 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 survive in new environments. So, yeah. I mean, one thing that I've been really um, struck by in you know living through this war, uh, this new wave of the violence in Armenia, you know, living through it in the United States, of course, not not on the front lines, but is that the new growth that has mm. been charged um, as coming out of re- the response to that is like has its own power and its own morphology, you could say, you know, it's popping up a new like fruiting body, right? If you want to extend the metaphor is like popping up in, in, in the United States or in other like locations where um, Armenians live in exile and, mm-hmm. and it's powerful and exciting and it's different, but it's also sad. And it's also, you know, due to, due to oh, apocalypse. Man. So you could, I think those re- it's like this, again, kind of this dissolution of like, this black and white thinking it's like good or bad it's like both it's epically sad and it's also like kind of powerful and exciting um yeah and then even on more individual levels of experiencing trauma whether you want to frame it in terms of interpersonal violence or these larger atrocities you know healing is is so nonlinear healing is not definitive is not finite there's no end point and i think mm. Um, is so is so unseen how it happens, and and that also makes me think of mm-hmm. fungi, these unseen networks, exactly underground. Um, yeah. Although I I was I I have had ex- like a more explicit thoughts of fungi. That's a funny turn of phrase. Um, specifically, <laughs> <laughs> specifically, there's many many acres of forests in Artsakh that were um, burned with white phosphorus munitions, and I've just had you know idle thoughts of I wonder what's happening in that forest. I wonder what that forest could look like in five years, in ten years, in a hundred years if it, as long as it's not further destroyed and patty actually <laughs> to just to name the amazing work that if you want to speak to it that that mm. you've started doing with armenian mycologists i think that's something that y'all have been maybe not i don't know if specifically with those forests but i know that that's something that you've been having conversations about yes please yeah so recently i with a group of friends um we founded this international congress of armenian mycologists or icam and yeah, we are all ethnically Armenian and we wanted to sort of, you know, we know it's not direct relief for like war efforts, but we wanted to leverage our skills as scientists to protect biodiversity in Armenia in tandem with protecting Armenian culture and advocating for Armenian like sovereignty. And, and we wanted to do so in collaboration with Armenians living in Armenia and making sure our efforts are meeting their needs and reflecting their goals. So um, this project we just kind of started, so we haven't we haven't collected any data yet or whatever. But we are developing our projects and putting together grants. So one one thing we do want to look at is the effect of uh, the white phosphorus that was used on the forests there, and perhaps try to measure their impact on biodiversity um, of fungi in particular. Although we are kind of nervous and we do not know if it will be possible to get to that area because it is uh, now occupied by Azerbaijan. And um, 
Armenians, not only, of course, are, is it maybe possibly an active, you know, fighting might be going on in those areas, but our Armenians mm-hmm. are actually not allowed in Azerbaijan at all. So um, even though I'm a U.S. citizen, um, my name alone uh, would bar my entry. So it's just not, might not be safe enough to do that, unfortunately, at least, but it is something that we are trying to, um, trying to do. This is something that's happening right now in this present moment. And I'm wondering, we're on this podcast in community with listeners and others out in the world. And I'm wondering if there are things that you would want from this community of listeners as co-participants in this world, knowing that this is happening to Armenians at this moment. Yeah, thank you for that. It's funny. It's not funny. It's it makes me think. <laughs> you know when you use words and then you're like, that's not the word. <laughs> yes, all the time. Um, it makes me think about how in the fall when everything was happening and literally every day was like frantically trying to raise awareness in every conceivable way through every every network that we had, and then after a while, the, the feeling of futility over raising awareness about a tiny nation that the global imperialist powers truly do not care about, just that sense of utility sink in. So I I guess what I would want to put out into the space of whoever may hear this is not necessarily along the lines of like awareness raising, but just on a human level um, in terms of like knowledge of this is a thing, this this is what this country is, like this is what's happening. Um, I think sometimes like people are don't even know that Armenia is a country. And so when we talk about Artsakh, like that gets confusing. So I would just want to clarify that and say that that Armenia itself is a country and Artsakh is land next to Armenia that it would take too long to do justice to the history of how exactly that was passed off into the hands of Azerbaijan, but it it has in part to do with the Soviet's divide and rule policy, but it's not it's not all quite that simple. But essentially, Artsakh is um, the ancestral highlands of Armenia, and pretty much like ninety nine percent of people that live in Artsakh are Armenian, and so these attacks that happened in September that lasted 44 days. Journalists that I've listened to, reporters that I've heard talk about this, um, I'm thinking specifically right now of Lindsay Snell, have said that the amount of bombings, the amount of drone attacks, the amount of fighter jets that constantly, incessantly bombed civilian towns and homes and, and infrastructure, and, you know, churches, schools, like anything that you could name. Hospitals. Hospitals. Um, that the level of bombing was, in, in terms of the intensity and the amount per day, was the most significant amount of bombings that, that she as a reporter who reports on things happening across that region has seen. So it was... It was really bad. And it's it's still really bad. People are still being shot at. It's not over. And also there's just, there's so much need right now with the folks who've had to leave their homes. And also I, I think that from, you know, uh, I don't say this, I don't say this disparagingly or I'm not, I'm not trying to assume what, what the average like listener knows or doesn't know about this region. But mm-hmm. I think more often than not, there tends to be this like Western sense that like oh these places are so like war stricken and you know these poor impoverished countries and like the really robbing these places of like their humanity and beauty and like architecture and life and like culture like all of the things that make it like a like a vibrant place vibrant cities which like Artsakh was before it was bombed it was a beautiful place and so all that is to say that there's a tremendous amount of need in Armenia that folks who've had to flee are facing if folks are called whether that's to donate or whether it's just to learn more about what's happening a couple good orgs I'll plug that are doing on the ground work um one of them is Kuidigs it it means sisters in Armenian that's spelled k-o-o-y-r-i-g-s Another one is all for Armenia. They're registered as NGOs in the U.S. Um, there's a lot of other orgs too, and there's so much else to say, but I'll but I'll stop there. Patty, if there's anything you want to add to that, um, yeah, no, not really. I think I think we did a good job of covering it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks for <laughs> yeah, asking. Um, 
It, I mean, actually means probably more than you might even guess. <laughs> Thanks for speaking to it. And I mean, it's this is what we're talking about, you know, on, on we're talking about survival and we're talking about and we're talking about our communities and we're talking Apocalypses. about apocalypses. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about mm-hmm. the definition of one. <laughs> yeah. So looping us back to more mycology and I, I think this connects up a little bit with thinking of I guess the idea of borders and mm-hmm. naming things. You you spoke to this a little bit in the article and I particularly was really interested in just the notion of taxonomy. And um, Patty, I know you are working specifically on classifying fungi. And I remember taking a plant taxonomy class when I was in graduate school. I was studying creative writing and I took it, I think, out of a sort of (laughs) general (laughs) queer impulse to be interested in how how things are classified and i wanted to write uh-huh. poetry about it yes mm, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well have you have you written any i have <laughs> i ended up doing a project that involved some herbarium work oh awesome yeah i i felt those vibrations that you're talking oh, wow. about with mushrooms but i did prairie plants because it was a, a land grant university in the midwest and i had felt that there was these clear naming of things for a long time. I've worked in a botanical garden where you see these little signs that tell you what plants are. And Mm. when I studied it in graduate school, it kind of disintegrated and I saw how human a discipline it is. Oh yeah, for sure. And I was just curious, like, how do people decide what to call things? How do people establish the boundaries and like, how is that playing out in uh, mycology specifically? Yeah, so that's a fantastic point. Um, I think so. Taxonomy is super valuable to science. So on one hand, I have this pitch about like why taxonomy is so important. Um, as a taxonomist, it's you know everyone utilizes taxonomy. Like if you could imagine, like if like nothing had names, like how would you you know that would be like. Mm terribly confusing and um <laughs> or if you like you know went into a grocery store and there were no labels of anything right um everyone uses taxonomy but you know people don't necessarily know that you have to be a taxonomist to to you know do taxonomy <laughs> so it's really important for science communication that that's the point right is i mean kind of the whole point of science is to communicate so much of science is the fact that we peer review and we share information and we build, we build collectively towards like this greater, you know, universal knowledge. I mean, sometimes there's very applied, you know, we want to be able to develop this technology for this goal, but in, but, you know, so much of science is just curiosity driven. Actually, very few people make some sort of massive contribution that like gives you this tangible thing, mm. right? Usually it's just a body of work that kind of chipped away at these particular questions, mm. um, which is, you know, in, impressive in its own right. But And both um, makes me think of once when I saw like a, a slip of, uh, I think it was, it was like an identifying card that George Washington Carver had written about like, oh, yeah. because he also mm-hmm. did mycology work. And he was yes, he was identifying yes. a slime, <laughs> and, and I just mm-hmm. remember looking at that like George Washington Carver's, you know, this this yeah, giant I mean, of that's a human. What mostly science is these very just small, some slime um, contributions, which I think that's I think it's awesome. But so with taxonomy, I have two ways of thinking about it. So I'm driven to name species out of sort of a romantic philosophical impulse of like giving something a name, even when it's we're talking about a, a very obscure fungus that me, I may literally be the only person who has laid eyes on, um, like I'm, I study some of the, these fungi that live on insects and they're just literally no one (laughs) studies them besides like a few people, like four people in the world are like experts on this group, but I want to give them a name because they've been on this billion year old journey too. And they're like a kind of, again, it's like a kinship. It's like a, you're my, cousin (laughs) and this is your name so like it's not a it's not an ownership or a stamp on it it's for me anyway it's I feel like it's deferential 
And then from a scientific perspective, you know, we're, we're looking at evolution that's been unfolding throughout deep time. And we're, we have our human lens is a snapshot of that ongoing process that has gone, you know, existed way before us and will continue way beyond the human race. And um, the best we can do is sort of make these delineations that can be communicated well enough um, to get their idea across. So I think a lot of lay people would assume that like species concepts are very like set in stone, right? We have, that's a species and that's a different species. It's something that you can always be able to tell. And there'd be some sort of quantifiable thing that like to limit that is just boom, there it is. But it's really often a lot more complicated than that. Um, you know, we have all these different species concepts that exist. There's the biological species concept, which is like, can two individuals procreate and create an offspring that could continue reproducing like a viable, what they call a viable offspring, which now, as I say, that word sounds pretty <laughs> homophobic. Anyway, there's also a phylogenetic species concept, which has to do with like the molecular genetics of the organism. And there are these cutoffs of similarity in the genome. And if they're 97% or more similar, that's sort of like an approximate cutoff for, you know, setting a species limit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all of these things are just, they're not universally applied. And, and fungi and bacteria also really kind of mess with that concept when you start to get like these horizontal gene right. transfers and you get um yeah like budding and asexuality and um we have there's a whole phylum of which is like a pretty high rank in taxonomy of like kingdom phylum right. class um order family genus species and there's a whole phylum called Gomera mycota and it's only known to be asexual <laughs> and it's sort of a mystery as to where does their diversity come from and, and are there sexual forms that we just can't find there's a lot of fungi that alternate between being asexual and sexual and for a while those were considered different species if there was there used to be called the deuteromycota which were um a these asexual forms of, of mushrooms and fungi and for a long time, because they're so morphologically different, the deuteromycota look like mold, mm -hmm. basically just like fuzzy, you know, white or blue or whatever. And then, you know, then you have like typical mushrooms and stuff. And they, they look so distinct that people thought they could not possibly be the same thing. But then with the advent of molecular genetics, they were able to connect the asexual to the sexual form and realize that they're genetically identical, but expressing themselves differently in different situations. <laughs> that's so, yeah, that's so interesting. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is not just true in fungi. There's some examples mm -hmm. in birds where things looked so similar that before genetics swear that they were the same species, but actually after DNA sequencing, mm -hmm. now we know that they're maybe even very distanced right. ancestrally. They have convergent evolution, you would say. They both sort of arrived at having these traits through environmental pressures, but on their own separate trajectories. Right. So that is true throughout all of life forms, but fungi in particular, there's a lot of that, a lot of convergent evolution. Mm. So it does kind of beg the question of like, why some people take it so far that they don't even want to like name anything. They just want it to be like strands of like genetic code that mm -hmm. kind of represents the species, but I feel like that that then that's when my the more philosophical part of me kind of pushes back, and I'm like, no, let's give these things proper names, a name in know? our language. Yeah, yeah, some sort of way of recognizing them as like almost uh, it's more like a as a as a being than just like a scramble of information. Well, and from a climate change perspective, I've heard you talk a lot, Patty, about like the importance of naming to preserve. Oh, yeah. To really know something, I feel like. Everything that we feel like we know, we have a name for. But also for like, you're right, exactly. Like, how I think it was like, for conservation purposes, you need to be able to know what's there and to, to have a sense of it before you can deem it, you know, threatened by climate change. And that's where this like, mycophobia really materially plays out. You know, we don't have that data for fungi. And it's in large part because they're very understudied, because they're, they're not prioritized. So we can't put the same amount of effort into conserving them as we do like charismatic, you know, megafauna, as we say. Pandas. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, panda bears. <laughs> 
pandas. <laughs> and of course, you know, you want all of everything you want to protect, but truthfully, like, yeah. I mean, I do not want to see anything go extinct, like pandas or anything, but truthfully, like it arguably is more, it's more consequential to more life forms that fungi in general get, you know, or understood than it is, you know, pan- pandas, <laughs> to be, to be honest. Well, I mean, you're talking about an entire the kingdom, kingdom. True. yeah. One <laughs> one type of of cat bear versus an entire yeah. kingdom, is, but but we should yeah we should not have to be making uh right making those mm-hmm. calls. That's a it's a mm-hmm. it's a false call. But you what you're saying about naming is so resonant for me on a level of thinking about mm-hmm. transness and identity too. I think you know, in some ways, Nat, when you were asking this question, something in me was wondering about, like you were saying, Patty, about the sort of ownership aspect of naming or this idea of like naming as dividing. And but as you're talking, I'm thinking about the ways in which like having language for non-binariness, you know, which Mm. is something that I've seen kind of happen over my lifetime. When I was a kid, it wasn't really something that existed in my purview. Um, I didn't know it was something I could be. And the sort of having of those words, you know, like one can be a thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and have, you know, as you're saying, like have the data, have the strings of data, but not have the name for it and not be able to sort of, uh, you know, name oneself, understand oneself. So I feel like on a very sort of physical personal level like that Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense to me. I was thinking that same thing as well, Nina. So I will also resonate that back at you. So yeah, totally, totally there. Yeah, that's thank you for sharing. That's that's really beautiful. Well, such a wonderful conversation. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting us. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Next time on Queers at the End of the World, join us as we travel to a white line nightmare with the vague and leather-clad apocalypse of Mad Max Fury Road. Who has to sit in the sidecar, Nat and my apocalyptic bikey gang? Find out in just a couple of weeks. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. The music for this episode was La Fin des Ericots by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworlds podcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. Get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>